invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. They're actually the same verses that we read for our memory verse and called a confession earlier today. At Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we're continuing our series, and I hope it's working some joy in our lives as we're working through this epistle of joy, this letter of joy as it's called, Paul's letter to this church in Philippi. That you'll recall, perhaps he founded in around the year uh, 50 A.D. He's writing to now 65 A.D., 15 years after that church was established. So it's a fairly new church. He's writing from his imprisonment in Rome at this time, having completed his second missionary journey and the third and being in prison now in Rome. He wants to share with them some words that may be his last words on this earth to share with this congregation. So some important words, and particularly in this section that we began last week and are continuing on this week. In this section of Philippians, he is pleading with them, calling them to an attitude, a posture of unity as a body of believers. To recognize that God desires for us to be linked together and connected. And in particular today... He wants to address the primary issue that pulls us against unity, that pulls us away from God and pulls us against from each other, against each other, and that is pride. That is pride. And so he wants to call us to humility, and the way that he does it is by calling us to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in his humility, to follow his model and his example. So I invite you to stand with me in recognition and honor of God's Word as I read aloud, and you can now read along silently. I know we've already read it one time, but let's read it again so we can consider this memory verse practice, if you would like. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let me read it to you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. And let me pray for us again. Father, we do pray that you would work deeply in our lives through your word today. Transform us so that we might know more the joy of our salvation. Work in our lives that we might walk as more humble people and thereby strengthen the unity of your body, the body of Christ, this body of believers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, there was a Christian fad, if you will. It appeared on bumper stickers and bracelets and T-shirts, just 
four letters, WWJD. You probably saw it around, even if you personally weren't wearing something with it on. What would Jesus do? And if you think about that saying, there's a lot of strength to it, but you may also have caution and say, well, maybe there should have been produced along with it a WHJD. Maybe those Christian marketer people, wherever they are, might have produced a WHJD. What has Jesus done? What has Jesus done? When we realize that first and foremost the gospel is about what Christ has done for us and that we can't ever in and of ourselves and our own strength live up to who Christ is, we might wish that they had produced both of those things. Well, whether they did or not, Apostle Paul is bringing both of them together for us perfectly in this passage today. As he declares to us the wonderful thing that Jesus has done for us, and as he speaks to us about that, writes to us about that, declares to us that we are to seek to do that thing, to follow Jesus, to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? Indeed, he did humble himself completely in the fullest and most beautiful way. And the Apostle Paul invites us here to follow Jesus in that path. You want to look in your worship guide towards the back portion of it, you can find some notes. There's a place there for a main idea. A main idea, and I think the main idea in these verses is simply this. Since we only enjoy life in Christ, since we only enjoy life in Christ, because of His humility, we should humble ourselves to unite with each other in Christ. Since we only enjoy, we can only have our life, uh, our spiritual life in Christ because He lowered Himself. He gave Himself up. We ought so to seek to humble ourselves to unite with each other in Christ. We think about this verse, big picture. Uh, one of the writers about these verses, Matyer, put this down, and I believe it's in your bulletin as well. He said, the story of the cross is told in each of the four Gospels. The meaning of the cross is the preoccupying theme of the epistles. Those are Paul's letters and so forth. But the present passage uniquely unfolds the cross as seen through the eyes of of the crucified one and allows us to enter into the mind of Christ. We tread, therefore, on very holy ground indeed. We do well to remember that this privilege is given to us not to satisfy our curiosity, but to reform our lives. That's the end game here. We're going to look at a lot of different things and examine this passage, which obviously has a great deal of meat to it, but end game is that our lives would be changed. Do you know what the worst form of human cancer is? It's not uh, pancreatic or liver or even lung cancer. 
the worst, the most deadly form of human cancer is pride. Is pride. If you think about it, in the garden when Adam and Eve were there and they were tempted, what was their decision? To put themselves in the place of God. Why is it so spiritually deadly to be pride? It maybe sounds a little uh, not so good to have pride, but is it really that damaging and dangerous? Well, it's damaging and dangerous because when we're prideful, we are putting ourselves in the place of the living God over us. So pride is damaging to us. Pride is also damaging, as we're going to see in these verses, not just because it interferes with our relationship with God, but as we saw again, if you think of Adam and Eve in the garden, what happens instantly after they fall into sin? They begin to be divided from one another as well. What's the remedy? What's the solution? How do we solve this problem? The solution is in Christ, and it's in the humility that he calls us to. That's what we want to look at this morning. Humility is going to help us uh, in the church body for sure. If you want to, you can take, I hope you'll take, all that we talk about today and paste it over onto marriage relationships, onto being a parent, onto being a child, onto the workplace, onto friendships, because it applies all over the place. But we're going to focus on its relationship to the church body because that's Paul's main theme here. Walking in humility is... Not easy, though, is it? You might have heard the story about the woman who had finished singing a solo at a local congregation. She had done a beautiful job. And people were complimenting her after the service on what a great job she had done. She was trying to deflect that and walk in humility. So she simply said, it wasn't me doing it. It was Christ. One of the listeners muttered to a friend off the side, well, it wasn't that good. It's hard to walk in humility. It's hard to walk in humility. If pride is the reverse of humility, let's talk for just a second before we move through a couple of points today about how pride is so damaging to our unity with one another. What does pride say? Pride declares that I am better than other people. And if I'm better than other people, then it makes sense for me to make judgments about them negatively in my own mind, perhaps to even look down upon them in my attitude, maybe even go so far as to make some passing comments to those around me. That's what pride declares. Humility calls us to the opposite as we saw last week, just a verse or two before our section this morning, humility actually calls us to view others as better than ourselves. Pride declares also that my way is the best way. Pride says my way is the best way. Other people might have ideas, input, but I've thought it through more carefully. I have a better understanding. I have greater experience than others around me. That's what pride does. Humility speaks the opposite. Humility says, let me listen to what you have to say. Let me learn from you as a brother or sister in Christ. 
Pride is perhaps the ugliest when it declares in a pseudo-Christian, pseudo-spiritual form that the reason you or I are maturing spiritually or doing better at least outwardly in some observable spiritual category is because I've worked harder at it. I've put more effort into it. That's why I'm moving along spiritually. And, of course, conversely, we look around and say, if so-and-so outwardly doesn't seem to be doing as well walking with the Lord, it must be because they're not trying hard enough. Lots of problems with that one, of course. Lastly, let me say this, and we could probably go on a lot more. Pride ultimately says this. God does not know what he is doing. And so if he calls me to forgive and maintain unity in a body of believers by forgiving what someone else has done for me, and that's hard for me to do, I don't necessarily need to do it. If he calls me to be gracious with someone who's harsh to me, I don't necessarily want to do it. Pride declares that God doesn't know what he's doing and therefore doesn't care to listen to what he tells us is good, even if it's really, really tough for us to pursue. So there's the problem. We've got it pretty well identified, I hope. What's the solution? Well, we'll look at three things in these verses today that are offered to us. The solution ultimately is in Christ working in our lives to show us that we're broken and need his grace and mercy. And that that work of grace, what has Jesus done, as I said earlier, would produce in us a sincere desire to be changed into more humble people. And when we want to be more humble people, we say, show me the model for that. What would Jesus do? What has Jesus done on the cross? So three things we'll see. Jesus chose humility. Jesus suffered for humility. Jesus was exalted in his humility. So too, we must choose humility, suffer for humility, and be prepared to be exalted in humility. Let's take a look at that. First, we're called to choose humility. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't have to let go of his position, as these verses tell us, but he chooses to do so. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord, and we choose not to. Of course, on the one hand, all this work of God's grace is it's, it comes from him. If we're to grow in humility, it comes from him. We certainly don't want to be in the place of patting ourselves on the back and saying, man, I'm really, really doing awesome at this humility thing. I am really doing great at it. I've got it knocked out. We don't want to be in the place of saying that. We've got to say that this is the Lord's working. At the same time, what I want you to see is these verses today and also verses like James 4.10, which says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Tell us that this is something we need to choose. We need to pray and ask that God would work in us humility, but we need to choose to pursue it as well. That's what these God, this message is calling us to. So look with me at verse 6. Let's see what Jesus did. Let's dive in here. Verse 6 tells us that he was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
Now, we know if we look elsewhere in the Scriptures at various verses that they affirm that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Just a few, Hebrews chapter 1, that tells us Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1 tells us that, uh, also says that he's the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created. Everything was created by him and through him. And when I read that he was in the form of God, it sounds a little bit like a step down from that. I wonder, it makes me wonder, maybe if those uh, gracious ladies that showed up at our door uh, two Saturdays ago to visit with us and share with us some literature, maybe their opinion about Jesus being just a great spiritual man, maybe that might be true. What is the Apostle Paul saying here when he says he was in the form of God? That word form is actually just as strong as those other verses from Hebrews and Colossians that I read to you. It means really and truly, in his essence, he was God. Sounds a little bit less to us, but it's actually just as high. And, of course, it tells us there that he had equality with God. It goes on and says that he did not consider that equality with God something to be grasped. Again, it's a little bit of a challenge here. Is it saying that he didn't have it and he's got to reach out and get it? No, the idea here is the opposite. I mentioned a few weeks ago trying to wrestle a favorite toy from a child. When they're grasping a toy and they don't want to let it go, that's what we're talking about here. Jesus had hold of equality with God, and he chose willingly to release it. He didn't consider it something that he had to hold on to at all costs. He let it go for us. What did he let go of? Let me just mention a few things. And we could go on and on with this. But Paul makes this point that he's letting go of something. What is he letting go? He lets go of many of the privileges of his divine nature, his heavenly glory. He even lets go, it seems, of some of his omniscience. You remember he said he didn't know the hours or the times of certain things. So he let go of some of that. 2 Corinthians 8.10 tells us that he let go of heavenly riches. I, I don't know exactly what... That means, but it says that he was rich and became poor so that we who are poor might become rich in a spiritual sense, not in a monetary or financial sense. And then we'll talk about this in a minute a little bit more. But he let go of some level of his intimacy and fellowship with God, especially, we think, on the cross when he declared, My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Jesus let go of a lot of things in order to humble himself. And the question for us today, remember we're moving to our own lives, is in order for us to walk in humility, are we willing to let go of the privileged status that we have in our own mind? We never had anything close to the privileged status that Jesus actually had and had to let go, but we envision ourselves having some privileged status. Are we willing to let it go? I mean, we might walk humbly with one another. Of course, the ultimate question here, too, is not just what he let go of, but if you look with me in verse 7, what did he enter into by letting go of? Verse 7 says, He made himself... Again, a choice. He's choosing to do this. He made himself 
nothing, taking the form of servant, being born in likeness of men, being found in human form, is telling us four or five ways the same exact thing. He took on a lowly position. We know Mark 10:45 reminds us that Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You remember what he was talking about, what the setting was of those verses? His disciples, these people who had listened to him and walked with him day in and day out, instead of being united with one another, figuring out how they could advance the kingdom together, were striving against each other, trying to figure out who was going to be in the highest position in the kingdom. Jesus comes as a servant. He shows us what it means to serve. Of course, John 13, where he gathers together the disciples, including Judas, who's about to betray him. Can you imagine Can you imagine sitting and washing the feet? One thing for the king of the universe to wash the feet of all these other guys who are sinful and Peter who was going to deny him, but to sit there and wash the feet of Judas who would betray him for a bag of money. Jesus is the servant. What's this mean for us? To choose humility. Well, I like what... Tim Keller says, I think it's in your bulletin perhaps there, he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. What's he saying there? If your name happens to be Usain Bolt, and you have won every Olympic contest and running race possible, and all the world medal things, and all the world records, and you hold all of those If you can say and say as a matter of fact and give glory to God for it that you are really, really fast, in his case, you could even say I'm the fastest person on the globe, then that's not pridefulness. You can say that in humility. If you're good at your job, if you're seeking to be a dedicated parent, if you happen to look nice, if you're a musical or talented or artistic or whatever abilities or experiences you have. Humility doesn't mean that we pretend we don't have those things. What it means is that we take all of those things and put them under the Lord that's described here, that we bow down to Jesus as king and say, these come from him for us. I'll tell you what that does. If we begin to pray that God would help us to do that, it'll change our relationships with each other. There's, uh, I'm sure, in your bulletin, a statement from Jonathan Edwards. He was one of these Puritan guys, so bear with the language just a little bit, but you'll, you'll see where I'm headed. Uh, 1730s and 40s, he led, uh, was part of one of the greatest revivals in our country, the Great Awakening, they called it. And he had 100-plus resolutions that he sought to live by. We would probably find it a little legalistic, and maybe it was. But nevertheless, this one sure is helpful for us if we would... Take it and receive it square on. He said that he was resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself. And listen to this. And prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. What's he saying there? 
legitimately, we might look around and see another person, maybe a, a close friend or a spouse or somebody nearby in our church that we know a little bit about. And it may appear that there's some uh, greed there or some selfishness there or some judgmentalness there or a struggle with addiction or whatever issue you discover or you observe as you get to know someone better. And what Edwards was saying is that instead of that being some means for us to prop ourselves up and feel good because we don't maybe struggle as much in that area, that in fact we should take that issue that we see legitimately in our brother or sister and have it be for us a means for us to see our need of grace in that same area. Maybe, maybe in a different way, but in that same area. What's it going to look like for us to choose Humility, to choose humility. Second thing we see in these verses is that we must suffer for humility. Jesus, we know, is already in this humbled form. We're in Philippians again, Philippians 2. But it goes on and tells us in verse 8 that he humbled himself. So he let go of all this glory, took on this humble form, and then he goes even that greater step forward, the most monumental step of all human history, and goes to the point of being obedient to death, even death on a cross. What's this mean for us, folks? It means that if we're going to walk in humility, if you feel like you are dying inside in some way to have to let go of some areas of pride, if it feels difficult like a struggle, that's because it is. Because it's a struggle to be changed in the inside and to grow in humility, to walk away from pride. I don't have time to look at Psalm 22, but if you want to, you can jot that down. Many verses about the suffering that Jesus underwent on our behalf. I think perhaps many of us are familiar with the fact that he was mocked, he was spit upon, he was whipped, he was treated in a horribly and shameful way, and then nailed to a cross. It's his crucifixion. He suffered in order for us to have salvation. And so we shouldn't expect anything else to walk in his path. Ravi Zacharias recounts the story of uh, Joseph Damien, who was a missionary in the early 19th century, so early 1800s, to one of the islands at Hawaii, which were then sort of unsettled, unsettled primitive areas. And he went there to reach out. Sounds like a nice opportunity, but actually he went there to reach out to a colony of lepers who were living on one of the islands at the time, shared the gospel, was with them for a, a, a number of, of days and weeks, months. One day, as he was preparing uh, his morning coffee or beverage or whatever, he had heated up some water to the point of boiling, and he accidentally spilled it, and it fell onto his bare foot. It took him a second, but he noticed that he didn't feel the water hit his foot. He wanted to test it out again, and so he actually took some of that boiling water and then poured it on that same spot. And he knew immediately what was happening. He went that day, and those who were listening to him remember it and recounted it later, that instead of his characteristic beginning to his message, beginning to his devotion to the people he was ministering to, he normally began by saying, my fellow believers. Instead, that day, he stood and said, my fellow lepers. We're going to walk in humility. We're going to follow Jesus and 
bowing down and serving and building up unity through serving and suffering for one another, it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something. Now, some of us may not be headed to the mission field, but we have the opportunity to, in a way, suffer with one another, even in our regular fellowship with each other. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. You all recall that he was the German theologian and pastor had left Germany came back in the middle of the Nazi regime, even though he didn't have to, to try to build up the church and see it grow in unity and prosper. He was eventually imprisoned for uh, his resistance to the Nazi regime and his promotion of the church. He died, was executed three days before the German, troop, before the German troops were defeated by the Allies. He wrote this about unity. He, he stated this about unity and the fellowship we have. He said that just like we, each person individually, in order to see Christ in our life and experience Christ, has to realize we're broken, we're fallen, we fall short. Each of us has to do that. So, too, we must do the same exact thing in community. We must look at one another and see not what benefits we get or enjoying hanging out with some such person or talking about the game or talking about shopping or whatever. Not that benefit that comes to us, but we stare and look at the other person around us and see for a fact that they are a sinner who will let us down, who will cause us in that way to suffer. And exactly in that place, we get to see Christ in them. Instead of all the other stuff, that we might uh, envision we see Christ in that other person. Will we desire to see Christ in that way, to walk in humility, to suffer for humility? I think our church body would become incredibly strong if we would embrace this. Indeed, would spread across our city and across the world if we'd embrace this perspective. Last thing I want us to see in these verses which may sound very counterintuitive to everything I've been talking about today. And that's this third thing, that if we walk in these steps, we can expect also that we'll be exalted in our humility. You say, well, how does that work? I thought you know, we're supposed to get down low, Chris. You're saying go down, serve people. How is it that we're going to be exalted? That sounds very self-serving. I thought we are just supposed to follow God and do what he says. Well, guess what? Call it like John Piper does, Christian hedonism or whatever you want to. The Christian life involves self-interest. If you and I are not self-interested in our eternal salvation, in going on to have heavenly bliss with the Lord Jesus, then we're missing the gospel. It is of great benefit to us to believe in Christ. We're going to enjoy wonderful things. We have a vested self-interest in it. Jesus, uh, it is said in Hebrews about Jesus that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Even Jesus knew he was going someplace. It wasn't an end in itself just to suffer and be humble, but ultimately that we would be lifted up. And this is, of course, what the verses tell us in verse 10 and 11, that Jesus will be exalted. Ultimately, all that humility will be, or all that exaltation that we will enjoy, whatever measure it is, will be submitted under Jesus, but it will come if we're in Christ and seeking to be humbled for him. I tried to think about a picture of this, and the closest thing I could come to, you know, we've got the four boys, 
And uh, they love the swimming pool, kind of swimming times getting to be about over or past over now. But having four little ones, we've gone through the uh, repertoire of various flotation devices that you can use. You got the arm floaty things, which really don't work when they're little tiny ones. You got the sort of ring deal with a little bit of a harness down here. I don't know how that got through the patent office because it basically forces their face down into the water. It'd be better to have nothing on them than that one. Uh, we've got one that's kind of a loose-fitting suit with not much flotation, and that's great because the suit floats wonderfully, but the child, you know, does this thing and his head's underwater. That's wonderful. We finally found this one. I think my wife got it for a steal at a consignment shop deal or consignment sale deal. It's got about two and a half inches thick of foam on the front and all the way down. It's got, it fits perfectly and has a strap that comes under here so the youngster's not going to sink down. It's, it's like a straight jacket that the Navy produced is basically the way I look at it. But one of the funnest things to do with our little one now, the bigger ones have kind of, they can swim on their own now, but for our little one, and it, it takes some bravery. It takes some courage, but it can be very exciting. Is for dad to take those feet and pull him down as he holds his breath underneath the water, going down way low, and let him go. Comes up out of the water like a prudential whale commercial. (laughs) That's what we're talking about here. You seek to go low. The promise of the gospel is that in that, finding your place low, you will be lifted up. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we praise you for the promise of your word. And we praise you for the reality of the gospel that Jesus has done for us all these things. And because of that working of his life in our lives, we desire to find ourselves following him. Oh, Lord, thank you for this reminder today that at the very center of our spiritual life, our personal walk with you has to be of movement to humility, to going low in you. And Lord, as well, at the very center of our life as a community of believers is that same going low. For in that, our pride will be removed and we'll be able to relate to one another out of love and out of grace and out of humility. And it will transform us. We praise you for the challenge in your word to this. Help us to walk in it, we ask, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.